Hey everybody, this is episode 138 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. I'm about to actually take off on vacation for a couple of weeks. I will still have episodes scheduled to post for you the next couple of Sundays, but I will be out of town, so keeping this pretty short on the intro, and then I'll be back in full effect from July 21st on. So, Thanks for allowing me to take a little break, but as I said, you'll have content coming your way the next couple of weeks Weeks, in spite of that. In this episode, I'm actually bringing on a new rogue coach. His name is Ryan Ponsonby. He goes by Poncho, and he's actually a really, really experienced coach in the world of track and field and has now taken over our team rogue Dawn Patrol group here in Austin, Texas at our central location that meets on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays for those that are looking for a more committed and higher mileage training environment. Team Rogue would be the one for you. Ryan is now coaching that group for us. He also coaches at St. Edward, Edwards University, the Hilltoppers, where he coaches track and field and cross country. But Ryan's background is a fascinating one. He went to the University of Texas where he ran as a miler and then went on to be a graduate assistant with Jason Vigilante, who was the head coach at UT for a long time of the men, and then went on from there to actually coach at the professional level alongside the great coach John Cook, Cook, who is now retired, and who was Shalane Flanagan's former coach. Ryan also was the primary coach of Leo Manzano when he won his silver at the Olympics in 2012. So Ryan has coached at the highest levels and at all levels. And he gives us a little background on what he's learned through the years from various other coaches, what key tenants make up his coaching philosophy. And he also gives us a behind-the-scenes story on how Leo won that silver in 2012. So this is a fun and exciting interview and will allow especially those in Austin to get to know Ryan a little bit better if you're if you might be interested in coming to train with us in that Team Rogue group. Otherwise I think you'll just be fascinated to learn about a different perspective on training from Ryan. So with that as a quick intro, let's welcome Ryan to the show. Welcome, Ryan Ponsabi, to the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Doing well. It is a wet day in Austin, but we are dry inside here in this wood podcast studio. Always a good thing. Yeah. A lot of electronics around, you know? So thanks for joining me. As I mentioned in the intro, Ryan is our new Team Rogue Dawn Patrol coach. You coach our morning Team Rogue group that meets Tuesday, Thursday downtown here, so it's good Good to have you on for the world to get to know you a little bit, although there will be some that already know you from your from your background and history in this sport. But I want to go back to the beginning for you with running. How did you get into it, and when did that start? Oh, man. Um, my first memory of running was uh, fifth grade. And I competed in a in a 5K in in Munster, Texas, the German Fest Fun Run. And nice. my best friend at the time had run it the previous year, and he knew that the last 200 meters were right after a 90 degree turn. So we ran together for you know 
all but the last 200 meters of that 5K, <laughs> and then he just sprinted and kicked and, and beat me. He right? smoked you at the yeah. end. Yeah. So the next year, I remembered that, <laughs> and I beat him. And then that summer, I signed up for summer track, and every year thereafter, I was running um, cross-country track, you name it. What drew you to it? Was it just that competitive fire that your friend sparked by snaking you on that final 200? You know, I, I competed in almost every sport growing up, and I didn't know it then, but I, I really believe that what drew me was that I was good at it, and I liked winning. I hated to lose. <laughs> and that alone, just kind of playing to my strength, I think was enough to lure me. I mean, I, I liked the feeling of... Being very good at something. Yeah. What other sports were you playing? Uh, baseball, basketball, soccer. Uh, those were the three primary. Was running your best, or did you have aptitude at others? No, I was good. I mean, I played, uh, you know, club level soccer. Um, I, you know, I was I was a good athlete. I am a good athlete, but <laughs> I think um, I, I definitely was better at running comparatively but yeah. i was good and when did you did you or did you ever focus as you progressed in high school did you actually focus on one thing or two things or keep doing everything no yeah I, exactly in high school my freshman year in high school i remember my track coach at the time in the spring um i was trying to do both i was trying to play soccer i'd, I'd come off cross country i actually broke my hip in cross country i took a a weird fall and and uh i had a fracture hairline fracture in the uh in in my femoral head um and so i had to take some time off all that time i was i was supposed to be in soccer so i was having conversations with the jv soccer coach about when i could return um and it was kind of a you know when you're when you're released by your doctor you can come out well my track coach kind of knew i mean i i won district and cross as a freshman and my track coach came out and said hey you know you really ought to consider your future in this sport, and unless your parents want to pay for college, <laughs> I think you should uh, focus on running. Yeah. <laughs> and at, 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 at that time, as a freshman in high school, 13, whatever, 13, 14-year-old, I, I remember having that realization, man, this is something I'm good at. Uh, I can win at it, and I could potentially go to college and get a scholarship, so best of all worlds so there you go focused <laughs> from freshman year on yeah and how did that go in high school i don't even know your background yeah i mean there was nothing like significant about it i mean i i going into my senior year i, I qualified for the state championships here in texas uh, i was 4a classification back then it was 5a was the biggest classification so i was 4a and i ran 153 as a junior uh, qualified for state, and I also qualified uh, as a member of our 4 by 4 team. So made it to state. Obviously, it's it's held at the University of Texas every year, and I fell in love with it uh, my junior year. Uh, my senior year, I was I was ranked number one all year in the state, but didn't medal. Um, boneheaded uh, tactical error my senior year, but. At that time, I'd, I'd, you know, already signed with the University of Texas, and that's where I was going to go. So you ran the 400 and the 800 and then cross? Yeah. So I had a, a different cross-country coach my first year, and then my track coach became my 
cross-country coach, but we never focused on distance. So I kind of <laughs> met him. I was running the two-mile mile my freshman year, and uh, I kind of met him in the middle with the 800, and then I, I had to jump on the 4x4. Four four. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, as soon as I got to college, my mileage jumped up, and I became more of a miler. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you, and you were recruited to UT, was it Vig at the time? Yeah. Jason, Jason Vigilante, who was coaching there at the time. So what was that process like? Um, the the recruitment process, or yeah, yeah it was you know it's late my senior year. Um, I I'd, I'd gone to a competition I think in Richardson um, in early March and ran I, I PR'd, but I think I ran one fifty two. But I took Jonathan Johnson to the line to the wire, who was a one forty eight high school mi- half miler. And I took him to the line, and, uh, you know, the next week I had an offer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... Because um, Johnson went on to Tech, is that right? He went on to Tech. Yep. He was uh, an Olympic trials uh, winner in 2004. Um, he was an NCAA champion um, <laughs> there at Tech. So he was he was pretty good. He could split 45 on the 4x4, four four and he was a 145. He may have gone 144. I'm... I'm probably mixing up his PRs but he was really good um but yeah I I really I I tell you the you know Vidge was somebody who really appealed to me um and he really did a good job in understanding that uh, I was running the four by four and eight but um he saw something there that I could move up in distance something more yeah what did you learn from him through the years at UT? Um, that we can overcomplicate this thing, really, truthfully. Um, it's it's a pretty simple sport. It's a pretty simple endeavor. It's putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there were there were times when, <clears throat> just like any athlete, you get caught up in, in, in workouts and splits and not hitting the times and marks. Um, he was really good at the psychological aspect, and I, you know, just... Keeping us as a team, uh, he held us accountable, but um, we were never the group that was totally focused on training in a bad way, where it's over the top. We trained hard, but if it didn't go our way, that was okay. We weren't big on keeping, you know, and and it was a lot easier then because we didn't have GPS watches, but we didn't keep track of every mile that we ran. We didn't break it down in splits and, and get too focused on pace it was more about effort we did a lot of runs on time and when it was time to work out it was time to work out and when it was time to race it was time to race and those were very different times than just your typical training run so um, the other thing that I've really learned from him was the the power of a team and and team dynamic and for us every year indoors we were going to have a competitive distance medley relay and that built a lot of confidence in us uh, early on and it, w- it went from the point of you know having a distance medley relay that could compete at the NCAAs to one that could win and ultimately set a world record right so I think the team dynamic it was really important for us to be to be team guys how did he foster that you know I think there was a lot um, he encouraged us to do everything together to live together to eat together to run together we, we he really uh, wanted us to become a brotherhood um uh and we you know 
I've got still a, a text message chain of 20 plus guys and it's a constant conversation. Um, he also recruited very similar minded people, driven people, people who hated to lose. So there were a lot of similarities, I think, in our DNA. Um, and that was over the course of eight years he was there. So, yeah. How did college running go for you? It was good. Um, I don't think I ever, you know, most athletes will probably tell you this, but I don't think I ever accomplished all the all the things I wanted to. Um, I always wanted to be a sub four minute miler. Uh, I wanted to be an NCAA champion. I never accomplished either of those. I ran three forty two for a fifteen. I ran four flat for a mile, and um, I never made it to an NCAA final. Um, I certainly think I had the potential to, but just never got it done. <laughs> what do you think held you back? Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm. I don't know. You know, I think sometimes overthinking it, right? And it, it's easy to overthink a race. And I think a lot of times we get into a race and we have a race plan. And that works less than half of the time, I think. I think you've got to be able to adapt to the situation. And those who can really react, who can react to whatever happens in a race, the pace, the tactics, and just be there present in the moment and not so focused on what they thought was going to happen going into the race, I think those are the ones who succeed, hmm. especially at the championship level. When you're racing. When you're racing. <laughs> So at some point in college, I think based on our prior conversations, that, that thought of being a coach that was seated in your mind, when did that start? You know, I don't know when it started. I felt like I always wanted to coach. Um, I always had good relationships with all of, all of my coaches growing up. My dad was my soccer coach growing up. He wasn't a coach by trade, but he was always uh, such a positive influence on so many of my friends growing up. And I saw that and I thought that was something, you know, he had, uh, I had friends who were on our soccer team who on Father's Day would come and deliver my dad a Father's Day gift, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sometimes they wouldn't even give their own dad a gift. <laughs> um, so I always saw that and thought, wow, you know, I think it's, it's the idea of working with people, right? And helping them to uh, accomplish what they couldn't do potentially without your help, right? Without your guidance. I think that's really what is has kind of made me click over the years. Initially, though, when I when I wanted to coach, I wanted to work with the best of the best. I thought that was like, that was the sexiness of it for me. It was, you know, working with Olympians, working with American record holders. I thought that was the pinnacle. And that's what I went for initially in coaching. So tell me about the evolution then of your coaching journey. Yeah, and, it, you know, I, I never thought it would happen as soon as it did. It kind of got expedited. I actually uh, initially thought, okay, I'm going to coach Power 5 Division I uh, program and, and go that route, and I pursued that. Uh, I volunteered after after taking, a you know, a year away from – I should uh, it's not really a year away from the sport. I, I co-founded FlowTrack, and I wasn't – an athlete or a coach for about a year, right? We were starting a business outside of it. And when I came back, um, I got inspired on the, in that one year. Um, I was interviewing a lot of people kind of like this, 
yeah. this situation we're in now. But I was jealous of the person on the other side of the microphone. Um, and I wanted to coach. And I knew that it, it, at that time it was the right time for me to start. So I came back to Texas, asked Vidge if I could be a volunteer. And uh, he said, absolutely. So coached for two years as a volunteer. And unfortunately in division one, that's just kind of how it goes. You, you have to put in your time, so to speak, whether it's a graduate assistant or a volunteer assistant, you've, you've basically got to go this very low paid or no paid route to start out, pay your dues and learn the ropes. Um, so I did that. And after two years, uh, I had, you know, some, some opportunities that, were there they weren't strong they weren't ones that i thought um i just wasn't really really excited about them um and that was 2008 and it just so happened that uh, one of my teammates former teammates went pro uh with nike and uh, leo manzano and it just competed at the olympics okay so at that time too vidge left for virginia so Leo was in this situation in Austin, Texas, where he still had a semester of school left. I knew him very well. Uh, I competed with him uh, and sometimes against him in races and, and trained with him for the, for the previous four years. And, I'd, uh, or excuse me, for four years and then had coached him for a year and a half with Vidge. Um, and he asked me just basically because I was there and, you know, Let's not change up too much. He'd just, you know, come off of a pretty good season if I'd um, if I'd work with him. And I said I would, but it would be on a temporary basis um, because I was trying to get a college jo job. And then uh, one thing led to another, and he and I are down in Mexico with uh, with John Cook and his Nike group with Shalane Flanagan, Shannon Robery, and Aaron Donahue. Um, they had all just come off of Beijing as well. And uh, Shalane, obviously, had just come off of her bronze medal, uh, which has now been upgraded to a silver, I believe. But, uh, yeah, all of a sudden I'm there with Cook, and, and uh, <laughs> we're just kind of figuring it out. And um, it grew from there over the next four years. So you became, in a sense, Leo's primary coach. Yes, and was, were working at the time with Cook as well and his, his group. Right. Tell us about John Cook. I think he's now retired from coaching, from what I understand, but was a legend in his time, certainly. In and more ways than one. And one of the strong Nike group, had one of the strong Nike groups before he hung up his whistle. So what did you, talk about his personality and what you learned from him. Cook was, uh, you know, He's he's pretty funny guy actually. Um, he's originally from Germany, um, and you know very much a German in in the stereotypical way. Very very disciplined, very regiment time you know form mechanics. Everything was very structured in his uh, in his training paradigm. Uh, he was also, I think, un uh, unconventional in many ways, especially when uh, he started getting things rocking and rolling um, at George Mason in the uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, you know, he was doing general strength, med ball, hurdle mobility, all of that 
much earlier than it had really caught on. I think he was, to be honest, a pioneer of adapting like the Lauren Seagrave, Dan Path, um, Vern Gambetta, all of that, all of those principles to middle distance distance runners uh, long before maybe anybody else or most anybody else in in middle distance distance uh, running. So I think in that way, um, he he certainly flipped it uh, on its on its head in terms of um, all of the ancillary work, all of the post-workout work, all of the pre-workout work. It wasn't just running. Um, and that, to me, was the biggest eye-opener. I saw, you know, where we went down, in, down to Mexico, and Shalane Flanagan, who'd just come off of her 10K medal, was doing um, a 40-minute, 35 35 to 40 minute circuit workout on the track. And I'll tell you, like very little running was involved. It was just constant exercises and drills. And she was very, very strong from just a, you know, just able to maintain form. And she's pretty ripped. Right. Um, So that kind of blew my mind. And then I think with, with cook too, he was, he was a character, you know, he wasn't afraid uh, to talk, to, to speak his mind, um, and he did that often. <laughs> I, was, I was attached on many email chains that I still don't know how I was attached to them, but <laughs> it was yelling at somebody or somebody's done something wrong or who knows. But uh, I think what I what I took from that was passion. Uh, there really was a deep burning passion and desire to win there, and and um, and I think his athletes felt that as well. It's pretty common in sprint workouts to have the athlete spend as much or more time on drills and perhaps some dynamic strength work than they do running. That's less, much less common in the distance world, but from what I understand of those workouts with Shalane and company back in the day, that would often happen where they were spending more time pre- and post-workout on form drills, dynamic strength, mobility work than they were actually on running the workout. So... Describe to me what that would look like. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think you're right on. And as a matter of fact, I was talking to Howie Kaflesky recently, and he told Meb's me... Meb's agent and brother. Yes, yeah. Meb Kaflesky's agent and brother. And he told me, he's like, you know, you guys spend more time middle distance athletes, especially you with Leo. You guys spend more time during a workout than Meb spends on his workout. He's like, you've got to allocate like four hours to a workout. Meb's workouts don't last that long. Yeah. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was, it, the more I learned about Cook's philosophy, it, it, there were layers to it. It was like peeling back a, you know, a, a, a medical book. Somebody made this analogy one time, and I thought it was spot on. You know, the 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 Netter medical books where it starts with the, the skin layer, and then it goes to muscular, and then it goes to what nervous, and then skeletal. There were layers to his training, and you start to peel back, and you think you got it figured out, and then you peel back another level layer, and you're like, oh man, there's more to this. And so it depended on the on the period. But let's say we're when we were when we would go down to Mexico, that would be you know, the height of the, of the, um, that was where frequency, intensity, and volume were all at its, at its highest and we're at altitude. And I think we went to Mexico because it was 80 degrees and sunny 
but we were also kind of isolated. None of us, except for Leo, spoke Spanish. So we were isolated in the sense that we were in the mountains, but we also couldn't really speak. So we, all you did there was train, and you focused right. on training, and you could do it um, pretty successfully with, with minimal interruption. And uh, a typical day would be AM session. Um, we'd uh, maybe go go out to a run, kind of travel away from from you know our base camp 40 minutes go for a longish run maybe up to 70 80 minutes and then uh and then we could come back in the afternoon um and go through drills go through exercises go through a circuit um so the morning run may be kind of more typical we may follow up with some general strength routines uh, just body functional body weight. We may take the medicine balls with us and do us a, a routine as well. And then in the afternoon, it would be very specific. Um, maybe a light warm up, 15 to 20 minutes, followed with uh, sprint drills, um, hurdle mobility, uh, various general strength routines. Maybe a mini circuit. And then we, you know, a few days a week, two or three days a week, we'd finish up with a weight routine, an ancillary lift su- session. Um, so that was that was that was fairly typical for down there. Um, and then some afternoons we'd mix in maybe uh, some short hill sprints, um, 40, 50, 60 meters just to get leg turnover. So it'd be a way to to come back from the morning's workout and get some leg turnover and kind of flush the legs in, in maybe a different way than we're used to. So what what is he trying to accomplish? I mean, I understand in the general what he's trying to accomplish with all of that extra work, but in the specific, what's he trying to accomplish? You know, I I often I I I took a notebook down there with me, and I wrote down at the end of every day, I I'd pick his brain and I wrote down everything that he said, and he said uh, with the form drills, for example, we're just trying to work on fraction of a percentage of improvement in form in developing tensile strength, right? And getting good form. And I think at the end of a race, he'd make this analogy, you're, you're gonna break down. But if we can minimize how much we break down by, then we're obviously gonna use our primary muscle groups, right? We're gonna use the, uh, utilize good form for that individual by focusing on over-exaggerating that in those drills and, and exercise routines. And ultimately, just get strong, right? I mean, it's pretty simple. Ulti- so sustaining form under fatigue. Basically. Yes. Yes. Now, we wouldn't sprint long fatigue. That was different. But we'd do lots of exercises while fatigued. And would this kind of work come season long? Or would it be primarily geared towards the early part of the season? It'd be... Uh, it, it's actually... It'd be if we, if we could break up the season and maybe... Uh, five right five periods it would be between three and somewhere around three and and uh, period three and period four let's say if five is the last period yeah or excuse yeah. me two and 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 three excuse two me and two three. and three yeah. so early so one the two, first three. yeah the first the first portion of the the season it, there wouldn't be a lot of intensity in that regard so more of a true base period yeah yeah and then how would it progress um mileage wise you know for for middle distance athletes at that time that we were working with 
we'd start maybe 30, 40 miles a week. And by the time we're in February, we're up to 75, um, 70 to 80 miles a week. But that would be about the max, would be 80, especially at that time, because we're also introducing um, more track-specific sessions. And in the professional world, we've got indoor season, but I can tell you that was never a focus. I mean, we raced, but that was never a focus for us. So we kind of, we basically raced through indoors, except for the last two weeks of the season. Yeah. Um, and then we'd pick right back up in, in uh, you know, in March. And was that different for somebody like Shalane, who was working more 10K? You know, I think... That was with with Shalane. I I believe uh, the year before, two years before. I'm getting my years mixed up, but she was injured, um, and that's when Cook first started working with her. I think in 2006 ish, something like that, maybe 2007. Um, so he was just trying to get mileage under her belt and keep her healthy. So he wanted to to get her as strong as possible, but she's an aerobic beast, right? Like, so really just getting her to the starting line healthy was kind of the goal. Um, at least that's what he told me. And then in 2007, um, saw more improvement, more mileage under her belt. And in 2008 is when she, uh, first took on the 10 K and you saw how that went. So at that time, I believe, her mileage was somewhere in that ballpark, 70 to 80 70 miles. To 80. Yeah. But she was cross-training a lot. You know, she was doing a lot of swimming at that time as well. Hmm. So what did you learn from her as an athlete in the time that you got to work with her? Yeah, and it was very short. Um, but I think Shalane, first of all, she's a great person. And um, we were down in Mexico for just a little bit. I couldn't tell you how long it's how long we were there for. I know total I was there for two months, but I can't remember how long. She was there for. Um, she was very driven, though. Very driven. She was a very committed person. Um, and I think one thing that, that has really uh, benefited her in her current um, situation with Jerry Schumacher is I think she has complete trust in her coach, and she'll run through walls for him. Um, she is obviously a physical specimen, but, man, is she ever committed to achieving a goal? Now, part of her shift to Schumacher, at least as I remember it, was the idea that she needed to get more volume to do what she wanted to do as she eventually moved up to the marathon. What do you think about that? I think it, I think it certainly worked for her. I don't know what she's been doing specifically in training, but I think it's worked for her. Um, and I think, you know, again, that belief... In, in her coach, I think is obviously you've got to put in the training, but I think her believing in him like she does, from what I can tell, um, has probably equally benefited her. But, you know, making the jump to the marathon, you do need to put in the mileage. <laughs> More miles. But Cook seemed to be a little bit, or he didn't seem to be so enamored by a certain number of miles. Obviously, 70 to 80 is a lot, but you have elites doing 100 plus, regardless of what distance they're running. Right. So talk about that trade-off I'd say in his mind and your philosophy. I'd say what I learned was there's more days in the week 
where you can implement quality sessions and they may only have you know we used to talk about half workouts a lot and we used to implement a lot of half workouts and we'd play around with a lot of um a lot of pace change throughout the week so you know typical let's say a typical seven week cycle uh, excuse me seven day cycle is two workouts and maybe a long run he may sneak in one or two half workouts additional so he's getting three workouts in a week um so volume doesn't necessarily need to be there if the quality is there right so we talk about the you know the three i guess principles right that make up any type of training paradigm right it's intensity volume and frequency the intensity wouldn't be enough to where he'd you'd have to pass the negative forward onto the onto from you know tuesday session to wednesday so you could go back to back but you weren't the volume wasn't so much that it constituted as a full workout. So we could sneak in um, back-to-back days, whereas if you kind of structured it in a very conventional training, um, uh, I guess training setup or training scenario, you've got a quality session on Tuesday and another on Friday, right? Or one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. He would go... Maybe Monday, do a half session. Tuesday, come back, take off a day and a half, come back that afternoon with something. Maybe an up-tempo 30-minute run, right? Um, But nothing that, you know, we did a lot with heart rate as well. So staying within a certain heart rate range on those days. Um, A lot of workouts that were fartlek-based, a lot of out and backs. So they weren't quantified in terms of, hey, you're going to do a four-mile tempo at this. It was, we're going to do an out and back. So we're going to go out in 15 minutes and come back in 13 and a half minutes, right? And staying within this heart rate range. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of that. There was also just repetition, 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 but slower, right? So when we really, really, really got into the to let's say phase four like i was saying phase five was basically just racing at that point that's championship but phase four we do a lot of repetitions on the track but they'd be ah, with a little bit more rest than i was ever used to you know maybe let's say let's use for example like 12 quarters right or 10 quarters um instead of an equal rest throughout he'd give a little bit more rest but every few let's say and it was sporadic too he wouldn't tell you but every so often he'd want you to go at race pace for the 1500 right or faster um and he wouldn't tell you where and it was honestly i think it was a little bit spontaneous and it was getting you comfortable with being uncomfortable um but you'd get more rest you'd maybe get up to four or five minutes rest after that fast quarter and then you get right back into the groove of you know your typical quarter sessions right somewhere around 60, 64 for elite 1,500-meter guys. At what point, and Leo was in that group, at what point did you guys split off from Cook's group? Well, I think, you know, we, I guess 2012, but after 2011, Leo had a, um, he didn't have a great year, and he had an injury at the end, and he'd tell you he didn't have a great year. He still made it to, uh, the world championships 
I honestly don't remember if he even made the semifinal. I can't remember. I know he didn't make the final. But he had a hamstring injury. Um, but, you know, the year as a whole just wasn't great. There were highlights. There were glimpses of it. I mean, he won... Um, he he won the Emsley Car Mile. He won Crystal Palace in 2011. Uh, beat Legat, and uh, I think he ran 351 there for the mile. Um, and then you know obviously qualified for Worlds, but outside of those very few highlights, it really wasn't that great of a year. And we sat down and talked, and I basically told him he needed to get away and analyze things because you know in 20 in 2009 he made the final uh, in Berlin and finished dead last but he made the final and he looked like a million bucks in the prelims and I remember thinking I, I thought truly he underachieved I thought he could have done better and we had this conversation afterwards just based on his workouts and just where he was at um, physically you never know when you're going to have another opportunity in a global championship final. And I don't think, I, I really think you blew that opportunity in the final. And he, you know, we had our words and, and uh, anyways, he came back the very next, um, well, the world athletics final in Thessaloniki, Greece, and he finished second and he ran a, a PR. I believe he ran 333 there, a season PR, which I knew was in him. Um, or excuse me, a, a, a PR season best. Um, and that was his last race basically until the New York Roadrunners, uh, fifth Avenue mile. Um, but last track race. And so there you go. His fitness was there. He walked the same guys down that were in that world championship final, right? Just like he always does and, and is, is able to do. And I remember having that conversation with him. And then 2011, I kind of brought that up. I was like, that was the last time you were in a final. And granted, there wasn't one in 2010, but still, you never know when you're going to get those opportunities and you better capitalize on them because anything can happen when you're in the final. And if you're not there present in the moment, if you think I've made it just because I'm in the final, you've already lost, right? If you step into that call room 45 minutes before the race goes off and you don't have your mind absolutely made up on what you're going to do, you're lost. Those guys are going to eat your lunch every single time. And it's a lonely place in there, by the way, if you don't know what you're going to do. 45 minutes, 12 guys just staring at each other. The, right? best, the best in the world, too, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I guarantee you there's three of them who know exactly what they're going to do. You better, be, <laughs> you better be one of those three. Um, so, you know, he, he went away, went on vacation, and he came back, and he was completely changed. And I, 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 I restructured his training a lot. Um, I felt like we were doing more intensity than he absolutely needed. Because he's a guy who, first of all, he can get in shape very, very quickly. Um, he's also somebody who's naturally got a gift of being able to close, right? So he can maintain a certain pace and close off of that. Um, and that's generally 1,500-meter race pace. 800, he just kind of gets in and hangs on, even though that's his favorite race, and he's very, very good at it. Um, so I took a step back and I had conversations with cook about it. And I, you know, I basically said like, I think I need to, um, do something different with Leo this year. And my whole theme 
in 2011, you know, fall 2011 and 2012 was just keep it in the fairway. Let's not try and hit these hard, crazy workouts. Let's just keep it in, in the fairway for Leo, right? Things that are attainable. And it'll compound on itself, I guarantee you, because I just knew him, right? And if we're keeping him in the fairway in terms of we're never really swinging for the fences in a workout, like everything he does, he could walk away knowing that he could do one more repetition harder or he could come back the next day and feel pretty good. That was kind of the indication. Um, I also reintroduced some very key workouts that I thought really resonated with Leo. Um, If you know Leo... Uh, repeat K's. He loves repeat K's. Six by K, you just minimize the rest over time. Keep it at a at a, a pretty comfortable pace. He loves K's. Three um, hundreds he likes. Four hundreds. So you you kind of reintroduce these every so often. Um, but that was it. Um, we did a lot more uh, threshold type workouts we got into tempos regularly with him and nothing that was out of this world i mean we were on town lake we got up to you know five miles on town lake and uh i just kind of positioned it as a progression um so we'd start uh, with a pack right um at that time it was jacob hernandez kyle miller pablo solares leo jackson kavuva uh, Mohammed Amon was there for a little bit. <laughs> I think he was here for all of maybe a sip of tea, uh, like two weeks, and then he went back to Ethiopia. Uh, he was the, uh, at that time, he was the um, only person to, to beat Rudisha, I think. Well, the last person to beat Rudisha. Um, gosh, when, did it, when was that? 2011. So he must have beat him right in the end. I think he beat him in Brussels, maybe in Belgium. Um, and he broke Rudisha's like two and a half year win streak. And uh, so we, we had him here in Austin training. Um, so we, we had a pretty solid guys middle distance group. Um, they'd start at 520 and, and the last two or three miles, um, they'd be at five down to 430s on the trail. But finishing up, not really breathing hard, just, you know, slapping fives and and that's what I like to see. You know, they could easily run away from that, right? <laughs> and they were feeling good. They were not on their hands and knees. So um, we we kept it in the ballpark We uh, with, with long runs as well. Rarely did we get above 90 minutes for a long run. Usually it was 80, but it was sustained. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the workouts themselves, there was nothing flashy or sexy about them. Uh, we started re, uh, you know, introducing the repeat K's, repeat um, miles. I don't know exactly the progression off the top of my head, but I can tell you it was nothing super sophisticated through the fall. Um, it was basically just training consistently, right, within yourself and putting in the time. A lot of hills. Did a lot of hills. <laughs> I love hills. Uh, I'm learning that. <laughs> um, we got up to where we were doing repeat 800-meter hills. Um, but again, not fast. Right. And I didn't like the, the run down. So I had him jump in the back of the truck and I drive him down because I didn't like the, the downward. I, I think it does a lot, uh, especially if, when you're talking about repeat 800 meter hills for 1500, 800 guys. Right. It's just a lot of volume and keeping, keeping their legs. Uh, I just, 
I think we minimize the occurrence of soft tissue injury that way, basically. And I could control the rest, too. <laughs> so if I wanted it two minutes, I'd just fly down the hill with a group of guys in the back the truck. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we got to the point where I thought it was important to get to um, altitude with a solid level of fitness under our belts because I think it takes fitness, a very strong baseline fitness in order to really gain fitness at altitude when you're going in and out like we were. So we got there and one of the second week, Leo and David Torrance were doing repeat Ks at altitude, uh, minimal rest. I think we were doing maybe 70, 70 to 60 seconds rest. We started off at um, 255 and worked down and uh, they did eight by a K and their last one, the two of them were just banging it out and they, uh, they finished in 231, but again, within themselves. They were both very strong. We hadn't done anything fast or anaerobic at that point. Um, and I just remember thinking that's a different Leo than a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. He would never have been able to do that workout. And, and these, these small successes in training started to build, right? And the confidence started to build. And then um, came out of Mexico, went to Arkansas. To, back then, they still had the Tyson Invitational. And I think he finished sixth or seventh. But he still ran 356, I think, for a mile, which was the, I, I believe it was the best he'd, at that point, he'd ever run professionally I- indoors in a mile. So that was good. And it was the first race of the indoor season. And then, um, you know, I don't know that he raced again until indoor USAs. And that, that was all because of confidence. We, uh, we had a flight get canceled. I think we were going to go up to Boston. Um, didn't need another race already had the qualification and I remember talking to him because I had a whole group here and he was the only one or, or no it was him and Shannon um, they're the only ones going to compete indoors and I remember telling him I'll go if you really need me to but I got a whole group here and he's like nah man I got it don't worry I was like really <laughs> and he goes yeah man I got it and all of those successes in training all of that confidence has built and he went in there like like a man on a mission, just going to work, um, and won it and came away indoor, USA indoor champion for the first time ever, right? Beating Centro, I think Galen actually ran the mile that year, Galen Rubb. Um, who else was in there? You know, a lot of good talent, but... I, and I and I do believe that was a world championship year, and we decided not to go. Uh, we wanted to focus on the you know the outdoor progression, the Olympic trials. And so I think either Galen or Centro got to go because Leo gave up his spot. So, anyways, that was it for indoors. But you know, one race was a was a personal best ever indoors as a as a well yeah ever, and the other one was. Uh, was a victory and that always feels good right anytime a a, truly a competitor just wins that breeds confidence so that's enough for indoor let's get ready for outdoor Mm -hmm. before we talk about the final build to london where obviously he won a silver medal i want to talk about two 
things in that that you mentioned. One is staying in the fairway. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people feel like they have to be training at the edge or near the line in order to get something out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Unless they're, you know, unless they're dragging ass on every run or every workout, they're not doing work. Right. So let's talk about that. And then secondarily, why hills? <laughs> so <laughs> start with the fairway question first. So my, I mentioned my freshman year, I'd, I went from running maybe 15 miles a week in, in high school to running 70, 70 plus miles a week. And I was sick and tired a lot and I couldn't stay awake through a movie ever and my friends all laugh at me now you know teammates we went to watch Black Hawk Down in theater and I fell asleep in the first five minutes that's not a movie you fall asleep in (laughs) something's wrong there (laughs) Um, I never felt good in a race I was always tired and I thought it was just the adjustment to uh, to college but I think there was a little bit of overtraining happening and the next year I scaled back to something that was much more manageable. And I took one day off where I just cross-trained. I biked for 30, 30 minutes to an hour um, on Thursdays. And I saw personally the effects of, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. You should always train hard, right? This is not easy to do. Anything that, any goal you have, of accomplishing something you've never done before, it's not going to be easy to do and you're going to have to train your ass off. But there's a difference between training intelligently and just going out and training hard every day, right? At some point there's diminished return. And I saw that not only in myself as a young athlete, but I saw where working with Cook, I saw that we could train hard, but we could also race really really well off of training hard and it wasn't overtraining. so we never crossed that line i don't think um we never had rarely did we have any injuries any soft tissue injuries overuse type injuries rarely did we have um uh, major illness you know where your body's just trying to fight something because it it's training so hard it, it just can't combat um the immune system shot so I learned that there's this happy medium where you can train at a high level, but it's never something that is too much to where you can't come back the next day. Now, I will say I scaled back a little bit in 2012 with Leo, but and I, I'll get into that later. Um, but I just thought with his situation, we weren't thinking about PRing. We weren't thinking about running a personal best or going somewhere and running one fast time. He needed to be strong um, for the rounds. And if again, if we just kept it in the fairway and let him do him in the racing, he'd be fine, right? Get him confident, get him healthy, get him fit, get him to the starting line. Because <laughs> he so, can close like nobody else. He can close, right? So play to his natural ability. Let him be him. You just get out of the way sometimes <laughs> as yeah. a coach and – I think we need, we all need a reminder of that. So since you've taken over Team Rogue and really even before you did, as we were writing the schedule for this spring, we added a bunch of hills. Yes. 300-meter hill repeat sessions yeah. at at Scenic Hill here in Austin where we're doing up to 800 meters back and forth on hills. Why hills? What does it do for you? So I think there's a lot. I think first and foremost – 
the hill itself, right? Running up a hill is tough. Repetitions uh, are tough running up a hill. You're going to have to have good form, and rarely do you ever see anybody running up a hill with bad form. It almost forces you to have good form. Now, the hills that I'm describing, that we do, I, I think we should describe, we're not going up more than 10%, right? Like we're not doing crazy incline. It's all very manageable. And anytime we finish a hill, we get to the crest and are able to open up after the hill. So we get beyond the crest of the hill and it's either a slight downhill or it's flat at the top, right? And that's by design. You don't want to finish a hill repeat with a, a shortened stride rate, right? Like you want to be able to open up and sprint off of it. Um, I think there's a lot of, of physiological effects as well. Something I learned from Cook, it's no better way to develop stroke volume. Um, I think it's also uh, a little bit of uh, uh, sprint work in disguise. So it's a nice way to introduce that type of work um, while keeping it kind of hidden. So you're, you're getting in potentially VO2 max type work or even faster if it's shorter um, while keeping it continuous and keeping it hidden. And, you know, sometimes too, it's not as finite as the track. So it's a nice way to get away from it, um, while still doing very similar work or at least a precursor to the type of work that you're going to get later. Um, but I think it also, it really just makes you tough getting up the hill. I think there's no two ways about it, right? I mean, running up a hill is hard (laughs) and you've got to, drive up it you got to power up it and i think a lot of times it's underutilized it's safe uh, i think also in terms of um, the angulation of your foot strike i think it's very safe to do and it's utilizing primary muscle groups you know so leo wins indoor in 2012 then you're building to london that summer where he gets the silver how did you put the finding final finishing touches on that season that ultimately led to the big medal we never got ahead of ourselves right we never got carried away with fast times and i think a lot of times you see in olympic years especially people are trying to do too much and i think the emphasis a lot of times is on fast times and not on uh, proper build-up and on racing truly developing one's racing tactics and where their strengths lie. You know, a lot of times, too, in the professional world, you're in races where it's paced, right? Well, how does that really teach you how to win a championship, right? How does that teach you race tactics that work for you? When you're in a paced race, uh, it's going to go out in 254, you know, and uh, you guys will close, right? Like, well, how does that, if we know exactly what's going to happen, how is that, it's great for fast times, it's great for, you know, getting good marks, but how does that develop us tactically, right? So indoors, championship style racing. Outdoors, he ran pen relays. He anchored, but it was very tactical. Um, And the racing outside of that, right? Like we knew, and we, we talked about this a lot in training. We did a lot of, with that middle distance group that we had, we did a lot of um, race simulation, with the with the intervals like somebody was to close at this point in this 400 meter rep somebody was to close while we're doing repeat 150 somebody's going to go at this point nobody else knows they're all supposed to respond we did that a lot actually uh in the in the final um in the final several weeks there leading up to the trials 
Um, but I'll tell you, up until uh, and everything was going smooth, and and he won uh, the trials and went over to Europe and did a little tune-up 800 um, in, I believe it was Reims, 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 France. I don't know. I'm probably butchering that. Roms, I think, because the U.S. just played there today for oh, really? soccer. Yeah. R-E-I-M-S. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Um, I think they're saying Roms when, whenever I'm hearing it on TV. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, I did the the point actually the point of the story is I didn't go. <laughs> I was here and I had to move my apartment. I was getting, uh, th- I guess our our lease was up or they were selling the condo or something. So I had to stay back and move. And I was like, I you know I just told him I'd I'd meet you over there. We'd meet in London. Um, and he called me after the race. He's like, Yeah, it went well. I won. My hamstring feels a little funny, but all good. And I think I was like in the middle of this Texas heat, moving boxes. I wasn't really paying attention, you know, to what he said. And I got there, and man, his hamstring was rocked. That he finished. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if he finished uh, Crystal Palace that year, but he couldn't move his hamstring. So we had to basically take some time off and get it right, seeing every physio we possibly could. And that adjustment was another. Um, for me, aha moment in not doing too much leading up to a championship. Uh, we're two weeks out, and he can't run 60 seconds for a 400. And here we are going into <laughs> the biggest race of his life. <laughs> um, so we we went back to the trail, and we just did repeat time efforts, right? Or I'd just mark things on the trail with a cone. So it wasn't so finite, right? But we just wanted effort. We wanted turnover, um, so we were, uh, somewhere, I, I, I think we were maybe in Teddington or something. And we were in the park and, uh, we do repeat one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, three minute, two minute, one minute, something like that on the trail. And we just do like, we were simulating repetitions maybe on the track, but we were just doing it by time on the trail. So it was soft and it was flat. And I marked the, 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 the little course that we were doing it on. And I saw turnover start to come back, but confidence was was everything at that point because he was basically undefeated outdoors uh, in in any type of championship uh, racing that I would consider. Um, so confidence was there. So the time off didn't really hurt, right? The downtime, and this was two weeks out from the Olympics. So you know, what the hell are you going to do at that point, right? I mean, you try and do too much, and you're only going to make the the situation worse. So I think the the only workout that that we really did um, that was somewhat you know taxing was repeat 800s at you know 203 down to 201, and we finished up with some you know 300s at 45 to 43 or something like that. That was it. Um, we never we never did anything faster um, up until the up until the games and. You know, there's there's rounds in the Olympics, right? You got the, the first round, the second round, and then the final. And Leo was always somebody who really thrived on racing. And he always felt like he could actually progress through the rounds. Like he would almost get fitter through the rounds. And I think he, in, in certain ways he would, he'd certainly get race sharp in the rounds. So we talked about that throughout that buildup. Man, you're just going to get better with every round. Every round you're going to get sharper. You're fit enough right now to get you there. 
Um, could take 10 days to completely decondition. So let's go give it what for and take one round at a time. Were you in the, I assume you were in the stadium for the final. Absolutely. McLuffy, who won, sort of made the race in the final lap. Leo was in good position, but not near the, not at the very front going into the final 200 and you sort of were, were waiting to see if that classic Leo kick was going to be there. And then in the final hundred, it was. So how did that race play out as you watched it? So let me back up. Um, I was in the stadium for the, for the final, but in the warm uh, area, which I said is 45 minutes out is last call. So you start your warm up basically, you know, an hour and a half out from, from race time. And we're there, and <clears throat> we we had always made it a habit of talking race tactics the night before, um, and we didn't really talk too much the day of, and that was just for forever with Leo. We never really talked too much the day of. It was the night before, and then you know that that was kind of it. Um, the night before, we went over the race routine and, and and in terms of you know tactics and where we thought he should be and. Um, who maybe had what, but of course that's like flipping a coin. You never know. <laughs> but uh, I think it was important, you know, always to kind of have a tentative plan and be able to adjust on the fly. After all, he's 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 the guy out there. He's reading it. He's got to be able to adapt. Um, but it was funny because right before this, I've n- he's never done this. He had never done this before. He's never done it since. Right before the race, uh, or excuse me, right before the final call, they're to, due to go into this call room, and the official's out there waving him in, and he's the last person going in, and his backpack's on and everything, and he, he walks in there, we like high-five and go get him. He comes back two minutes later, and he goes, hey, Ryan. I go, what's up? I'm thinking, oh, man, what is going on here? He goes, hey, what what am I supposed to do again? <laughs> I go, man, Leo, just be Leo. Just be you. <laughs> and he goes, got it. <laughs> nice. And uh, so, yeah, so now, you know, going to the race, I'd, I'd never, you can ask my wife. I remember telling her this the night before. I told her, I think, I, I and I was, I, I really believe this. I think Leo can win. I really remember having that conversation. And I never felt so calm as a coach as just really that Olympic buildup. But the night before that final, you know, sometimes you get excited and you, you have trouble sleeping, or at least I do as a coach, kind of think, what ifs, did we do this, did we do that? I didn't have a single hesitation in what he was capable of doing, accomplishing on that day. And even after he asked that, it was almost as if, he knew at that point that it really didn't matter how the race planned out or panned out. He was going to get it done. And when McLuvy took off with uh, 300 to go, I think I clocked him and the official paces or uh, splits are up there. And I think they broke it down per 100, um, every 100 of that 15. I think he threw down like a sub 13 second 100, 300 meters to go. And that actually played to our benefit because Leo was back. And all the guys between second and third, or second, excuse me, second and fourth, the top three, 
they responded and went with McLuffy, which was to their detriment because it basically took the kick out of them. Whereas Leo's last 300 was just a progression, right, throughout. And I thought when McLuffy went, okay, he's gone. We can't, he's not going to get him, but he can still medal. And at that time, even with 300 to go, I thought there's a shot. And then with 150 to go, I was I was sitting with Dr. King, our team doctor and good friend, um, in the stands at 150 around the it was actually around the 130 meter mark to go um, to go mark. And I remember seeing him go swing wide and I knew he was going to get second. I just knew it. And I went <laughs> ballistic and I didn't even see the finish because of the way like my angle. It wasn't great. Yeah. I just knew he was going to do it. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> He was in the perfect spot, and as you said, McLuffy had burned the kick off those other guys that he had right. to close down. Yeah. One silver, what was that like? What does that feel like as a coach? You know, I, th- I think it, it was certainly an emotional high that I can't quite um, – can't quite verbalize but i'd say the reason why it was such a high not just because it was a medal because in 2009 i worked with shannon robery and she won bronze in the 1500 in 2000 uh, at the world championships in berlin and that was obviously a high right this was different because of it was leo and i'd known leo at that point since 2004 we'd been teammates really well since 2004 we'd been teammates uh, we went from teammates and friends to coach athlete, still friends ish. Right. But it was a professional relationship, but it was, it was deeper than that. It was almost like a brotherhood as well. Going back to what Vidge had always, um, really ingrained in all of us. And so because it was Leo and because I knew I had personally put in every ounce of effort for four years to the to the buildup of that, right? Like I was gone for seven months out of the year for training and racing. And I was gone for months at a time. Um, so to see all of that realized in that way was beautiful. It really was. It's something that I don't know that I'll ever experience anything quite like that. But at the same time, I don't think I don't think it changed me in many in in maybe ways that I thought maybe it would. Um, I again, it was amazing, <laughs> but the it really made me question though in many ways the year after why am I doing this right why am I coaching and it wasn't because of the medal it was because of the process and the people right. And I found that I can have that experience at every level, at any level. It doesn't have to be at the professional level to have that. And the professional scene's pretty hard for a coach, <laughs> right? Like I look around and I see a lot of coaches who are road warriors. And for me, I always wanted to have a family and I always wanted to have a strong family life. And I just didn't think that was something that I could do while living on the road seven months out of the year. I don't think my wife would appreciate it. I don't think now my son would appreciate it. Um, so it, it really made me question a lot of things in, in why I was coaching. And now I'm less about that 
that sexiness that I described earlier with working with the elites and, and kind of that world and more about the process, consistency, and balance in my life. And I know a lot of coaches don't believe in balance in being able to succeed at the highest level, but I do. I, I think you need it. So now you coach at St. Ed's, the Hilltoppers, cross country and track, and then, of yeah. course, here with adult athletes at Rogue. How do you take what you learned coaching the likes of Leo and others at their pro level and translate it? You know, I think it's it's something that um, th- there's never one way to go about this. I think any any distance, any level of athlete, we can get to the end result in more than one way. It's understanding the individual, the event, and ultimately where we're at now. And I think working with the best of the best for for multiple years, it could be the same guy, for example, Leo, right? But he was never the same athlete from one year to the next. So, like I said, we completely changed things in 2011-2012. We had to adapt. So, it's that to me is the, is the fun part is the process and figuring it out it's a puzzle right that's what coaching is is it in my mind it's it's being objective figuring out what the process is here what works best for the athlete and in order to do that we've got to have a relationship right coach athlete relationship so the x's and o's sure applying those where where i see fit but it's really more than that um, it's really, it comes down to the relationship you have with your athlete and the trust they have in you as a coach. And you're only going to be able to push them as much as that relationship will allow you. So at, I think it's more applicable probably at the collegiate level, um, to develop that in young people, right? Like you see that sometimes with young incoming freshmen who maybe aren't as confident, maybe aren't as, uh, I don't know. They're a little bit wide-eyed, right? They just don't know. And you can work with them on that. And it builds confidence over time when, when they truly understand and, and they know the expectations of the, of the training. But I'd say that the overall experience, sure, of just coaching at that level and, and the things you learn and the you know, the conversations you have with other coaches, but I think really, really developing a strong relationship. So then what does success look like for you? How do you define success as a coach now? I think it's doing, I, I, you know, I subscribe to the John Wooden theory there. I think it's doing everything you possibly can to set yourself up for success, right, on competition day. So leaving no stone left unturned. It's not about the place or the finish or the time necessarily, okay? You could have somebody go out and win and underachieve. I don't think that's necessarily success. Flip side, you could have somebody go out there and get 20th and set a PR and do everything they possibly could, right? Based on their training, there's not more they could have done. That to me is success, right? They didn't win. They're not on the podium. I but like it. That's, you know, to me, it's, it applies at every level, right? 
words of wisdom for sure. So we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us here at Rogue on the podcast. It's good to have you now as a peer in our Rogue world here. And thanks for joining me on the show. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. So there you go. Ryan Ponsonby, everyone. Thanks to Ryan for joining me. Hopefully through him, you learned some other nuances of the training game, including why those hills are so important. So definitely get your hills in. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been episode 138 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.